We've got another episode of Boss Barista coming right at you. I'm Jasper Wild. And I'm Ashley Rodriguez. And I just got a little crazy with that intro, but we're having a good time. It's so, a good day. It's a great day. It's sunny and it's beautiful. And we are so lucky to have RJ Joseph with us in the house. RJ. Hi, RJ. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. RJ is a roaster at Counterculture Coffee in Emeryville, California. And RJ is also a writer and blogger. She has a blog called Queer Cup. And she also writes for Barista Magazine. So I get the pleasure of working with RJ a lot, which is really exciting for me. Yeah. We love each other. It's true. We love your blog. Thank I you so much. I often go on Medium and then just type in Queer Cup and, and you pop up and I reference your work a lot. I'm glad I pop up. I wish I were higher in the Google searches because that's really the reason that I'm doing any of what I'm doing is so that people can Google it. Yeah. It pops up for me. Good. Yeah. There's like one other weird thing that pops up before you, but I keep Googling and I keep looking <laughs> you. So Google's going to learn at least that I need you to pop up higher. Do you just have to keep Googling people over and over for that to happen? Algorithms are stupid. Yeah, Isn't that so what? Yes, but also there's a pay element where you can pay to be up higher in the Google searches, I believe. Mm -hmm. How did Dan Savage do it to Rick Santorum? <laughs> what? <laughs> Do you remember that? No. So there was a thing where Dan Savage, I don't know how he did it, but he basically had on his, I think on his podcast, he was like, everyone Google Sant like Rick Santorum's name and for, and then like the word Santorum came to mean like something, something kind of gross. I don't, or some, no, not gross. No, it was something that was like something gay. It was something gay, <laughs> which is oh. gross to Rick Santorum, but right? Not to us. But not to oh. us. So that his name would be associated with that after he said something about homophobic, homoph homophobic, just being himself, be just being so himself. Lucky. <laughs> so, be but if you Google Santorum, I think it still comes up. It does. And that's, and you have to keep Googling it because then we can ensure it into the future. So that was Dan Savage who, who did that for Career ruined. Or we could just, you know, not make gay a career ruining thing and then we'd all be better off. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> but we're doing that today. I hope so. So RJ, you've been in the Bay Area now for about, what, two, two and a half years? It was two years on April 1st this past oh, that's year. That's so exciting. I'm April Fool. Aw. You're just, it's just, this is all a joke. It's, I guess. No. <laughs> I um, guess so. Well, so tell us a little bit about how you got into coffee and how you got to the role that you're in now. Yeah. So, um, you know, I was working like typical post-college line cook jobs and that sort of thing. But at the time in Pittsburgh, it was very hard to find full-time work. And my wife, Ellen, who now um, is the retail trainer at Ritual, uh, was at the time the coffee program manager at Tazadoro, a counterculture account in Pittsburgh. And they were really hurting for bodies. They just really needed full-time people who were gonna work hard. And I didn't have any coffee experience, but uh, you know, I definitely knew how to work hard. So um, I got a job there and I realized that coffee was not just, you know, a beverage, but really like an amazing community and actually like a career that I could have that was not in the field I studied. Although since I studied writing, it's now kind of intersected, but, Whoa. um, so, you know, from there we 
we were building community in Pittsburgh, but it was still very small there. And we really wanted to have options that weren't opening your own business. And that's sort of like the best thing that people can do in Pittsburgh right now is open their own business. And since we knew we didn't want to do that, but we did want to move up and get closer to the supply chain, um, we decided to move to Oakland. Uh, it's a very queer place. We wanted to be, you know, Pittsburgh is, is queer friendly too, but we wanted to be kind of in a hub and just really find that community and see what we really wanted to do and just kind of have options because in a very small coffee city, you might like what you're doing, but you might just not have the same amount of options. So um, we moved out to the Bay Area and I got into production. So, you know, bagging and shipping coffee and just really nice like factory jobs, like work with your body, um, you know, pop on some headphones and enjoy yourself. And then I moved to counterculture and started roasting. And now you've mentioned that you have been doing a lot more writing specifically um, about issues in coffee. Can you talk a little bit about some of the writing that you have been doing and what your blog Queer Cup focuses on? Yeah. So um, a lot of the time when we're talking about, you know, discourse, like queer issues, talking about racial issues, we really want good resources to refer people to because people get tired talking about things to every individual person. The best thing you can do in terms of educating people is create, if you have the ability to create a written resource that people can just look it up and read it and they can read it in a way that is coherent and that you had the time to express yourself. So in the safety and privacy of your home, you sat down, your head was clear, you weren't feeling attacked, um, you weren't feeling like you wanted to attack and just put things down in a way that's clear, friendly, approachable, and makes it easy for people to educate themselves. And my entire focus has been on just trying to make things really doable because these issues are extremely complex and I'm gonna be doing the work no matter what. So if I have it in me and I have the energy to do that, um, I can A, help companies build out this infrastructure if they want to, and you know B, show queer people who are in coffee or wanna be in coffee that they're welcome here and that we can do the work and make sure that they can have, you know, at least a vision of a friendlier space if the space they're in isn't friendly. That's awesome. That is wonderful. And I feel like what you've been working on really has become like a written uh, kind of resource that people can like use when, if there's like, somebody's like saying something that's problematic and you're like hey like read this thing it's three minutes <laughs> or even beforehand before things even become problematic mm. something that i appreciated about um rj uh wrote this really great article for barista magazine about degendering the language of customer service is that you can put this in your you know handbooks you can put it in your you know onboarding paperwork like hey these are the things that are important to us as a company and it makes companies really consider what their values are mm -hmm. um, in terms of providing customer service and building inclusive environments okay. um, so even before stuff gets problematic you can kind of intercept that and be like mm -hmm. hey like this is a tenant in our company how how do we incorporate that throughout start to finish as opposed to like oh, something bad has happened, now we're going to address it. Yeah. Um, so something that you had asked earlier, Jasper, um, that I'm, I'm curious about um, is some of the issues that you still see facing um, inclusion specifically of um, queer identifying folks. What are some things that the coffee industry you think 
could do better? It's, it's kind of, um, there are so many levels in which people can do more that they're not aware that they can do more. So, um, you know, I think that one thing that's really easy that I've tried intensely to focus on, probably because it is so easy and I'm kind of a cheater, is <laughs> just having intake paperwork that actually accommodates queerness and makes it, you know, obviously the word from queer comes from people thinking we're weird. It's not that weird and it doesn't have to be weird at any stage. You can easily build infrastructure that just lets people know that they're welcome from the beginning and not just that you tolerate them or that you're open to things, but like that you realize that th these are sort of structural barriers and that the solutions are structural. And so, so many times structural solutions are complex and they're not simple, but regarding things like intake paperwork and the way that you handle, you know, various situations from, you know, from intake to promotion are all very potentially doable regarding issues of gender and queer and trans issues specifically. So I think that that is a very, you know, easily removable barrier. I think that really, really, really crucial to actual inclusivity is promoting people, hiring and promoting people. Instead of finding excuses to not hire or promote somebody because you might feel in the back of your mind, they're just some, for some reason, not the right fit. Find reasons to promote people who are different people who aren't currently represented in your leadership and just make that a top priority because it's very possible, but mm -hmm. it does take effort. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, going back to uh, intake paperwork and onboarding a new, a new um, hire, I wondered if you could give us any examples, like say a person has a different name or like different legal name or different legal gender than the one that they actually are how what are some like specific examples of a way a company can um have like a structural way of onboarding those people that doesn't make them feel isolated yes so um and this is the second piece i ever wrote for queer cup it's part of the series hiring diversely and this is part one so um oh actually part two is intake and onboarding part one is your hiring ad also salient but um Read both. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> totally. But uh, they all work together. But one of the you know easiest things you can do is that slot on paperwork that says name. Make two slots. Make one say per like make one say name, and then make the next one say legal name. If you have any parts of your intake paperwork that require a legal name, please highlight those and just make it clear that you require the legal name. Because one of the anxieties that many cisgender people are unaware of is that when you're filling out paperwork and you're not sure if you have to use your legal name or not, you don't want to because every time you put it down on paper and someone sees it, they'll choose that to call you unless mm -hmm. it's very clearly delineated. So really, once you give somebody that name, they're going to try to use it as much as they can. I don't mm -hmm. know why that is, but um, but it is kind of factual. It's, it's going to happen every time. So make sure that you're very clear about when people actually need to use their legal name and let them use their real name the rest of the time. Mm -hmm. um, in addition, collecting gender and pronouns is very helpful and useful. And I think that a welcome email that states gender and pronouns, well, actually stating pronouns, but not gender, um, because that's not really, you know, particularly salient, but people do need to know what pronouns you use when you're in the same company. And um, just kind of a photo so that when people see you, they associate your name and your pronouns. 
and like are just meeting you on the right terms so there's never a misunderstanding like ashley was saying just you know avoiding those types of hr issues you can get at them before they even happen mm -hmm. and what's nice about all of the suggestions that you just made is that they're really easy but you're completely right they're also structural and i think where a lot of companies kind of miss the idea of inclusion in practice versus in theory is not making those easy changes um to in, in, in existing structures so being like we're an inclusive company doesn't really mean anything if you don't <laughs> do anything yeah like you can say something and that's cute but like what are you actually doing to be inclusive yeah if you just say it, you're really just saying it for yourself. Right. And it's very true. And people it. often say, well, we don't have any queer people in our company right now, but we'll implement it when we get one. You might get one mm -hmm. and you don't even know. A lot of the time, trans people can pass as cis and you won't have any idea. Non-binary people definitely pass as cis and you will misgender them if you don't actually create this infrastructure. And people just sometimes won't come out to you if you don't have that infrastructure and they need a job because they might assume that that you're not friendly to it but more importantly it's just a complicating factor and they won't be sure that they can and if they can choose to you know live in subterfuge and it feels easier than bringing up an issue and you know many coffee companies are small and don't have hr departments so you don't necessarily have anyone to bring it up to so you know it's um it's great to avoid those situations you print new paperwork every time that you do intake anyway totally just mm -hmm change that document just ever so slightly and you know get your company on the books people will notice they'll appreciate it your employees will tell people that you have that infrastructure and they'll be promoting you as an inclusive company and you'll attract more people and those people are going to bring experience sets that really enrich your your worldview of your company mm -hmm. um you know as problem solving gets more complex we need as many types of minds approaching new problems as we can get so you know, you will benefit. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of there's a lot of studies that prove that. Right. I want to take a step backwards too, because we're talking about intake and um, the process in which someone has already been hired. But let's. I want to go like one step backwards um, to even the idea of like putting an ad out, mm. um, because this is something that you also cover on your blog. And I'm interested in ways that companies can really think about promoting um, diversity just from the get-go before they even hire someone. Because something that I hear from a lot of people is we don't have women or queer people or trans people or black people because they're simply not applying for these jobs. Mm. So what are some ways that companies can really think about for them Sig to apply right signal for them to apply but also think about like their active role in that because i think that that's a passive kind of resignation in a way mm -hmm. yes um that's a really great question there are a lot of things you can do um one of the things is just to make sure that if you have an ad a part of your hiring ad that says who we are that the picture you're constructing isn't very unconsciously a picture of a company of cishet white men and I can think of one company that is wonderfully inclusive in their staff, but their hiring ad uh, definitely speaks them from the perspective of someone who is, you know, who is um, like cisgender, white and male in the way that they talk about how they relate to other people. So there's very much like a mm. standard of like 50s politeness, like part of, you know, part of who we are 
is that like we offer our seat to people on the bus and it's like, well, so everyone who works for your company is automatically not a person who's going to get their seat offered to. So you're implying that your company is not made up of pregnant people or people who are elderly or people who are disabled. And um, and that's not what you mean, because that company is has such a diverse cast. It's a big company and they actually have very excellent HR department. Um, and. So, you know, then beyond that, I think it's important to actually come right out and state that we welcome people of all backgrounds in our company and important in that you say we hire and promote people of color, people who have criminal records should apply, um, queer people, people of all genders and from all backgrounds. And, you know, a crucial part of that is not saying we welcome these people to apply or we do not discriminate against these people because it kind of makes that kind of makes it sound like you want people to apply but you don't actually want to hire them and have them you know join your leadership team eventually so it's important to use a language that says we want you at the top of our company and we're trying to get you in the door mm -hmm. um be specific that you don't have a check the box ask for people who have criminal records because it's it's really important that if you do believe in running background checks as a company, that that's not going to be a deal breaker. And and really, with the disproportionate rates that that affects people of color, you're basically closing off a huge block of the population um, for things that every one of your employees has engaged in. Yeah. Right. Really. And mm -hmm. um, that you have infrastructure for queer employees is going to be obvious when in your hiring ad, you ask people to include their pronouns on their resume or cover letter. And that's sort of a cue for everyone that your company is actually approaching this from a structural and infrastructural standpoint, rather than just saying, we welcome diverse people and kind of having like a token nod to it because every, you know, as you said, everybody says they do that. Everybody wants to do that. But if they don't know how, they're not necessarily going to be the best at it. Yeah. And if you have choices, you want somebody who's good at it. You mm -hmm. don't just want somebody with aspirations. Right. Mm -hmm. And your best people might have choices yeah and you want them to choose you because you need them right and i think that that's important to to distinguish the fact that like saying that you want to do something but not having the tools to do it is almost like self-sabotaging because yeah. then you're like well this isn't happening so then there must not be this or that there must not be these people with these talents and it's like no there are you're just kind of going into like a negative spiral where it seems like these things aren't in front of you mm. um like I'm just thinking back to something that I was listening to that kind of really inspired this whole podcast is um, a company asking like why women weren't applying mm. and even just that question of saying like, well, women don't want to apply for jobs here. Therefore, maybe they're women who just don't have the skill sets to work here. And it just kind of like propagates this negative cycle of not only are women not succeeding at your company, but that you have this perception that women won't succeed at your company. Yeah. Um, so I think that idea of just these easy structural things is so key um, and companies really need to think critically about that. I learned a relevant term relating to that uh, just yesterday called the glass cliff. So you have the glass ceiling where it's harder for, you know, women, people of color, queer people to get promotions and get jobs in the first place. The glass cliff is when those people are promoted with the specific but maybe unconscious intention of having them fail so mm -hmm. that you can then use it as proof as to why those people shouldn't necessarily be a part of your company. And I think that that happens a lot when you don't have infrastructure, but you have good intentions. 
you maybe are a company with no black employees and you hire a black person and you kind of set them up to fail and then you're like see right oh God, you know we happens. tried yeah and it's like well how many employees that were cisgender white men have failed over the course of your company but you didn't let that represent the entire group at the end of the day and you can't let any one person represent an entire group at yeah. the end of the day what's so important about creating structural changes in your company and what's i think uh an unconscious barrier that some companies have is that if you say you know what's your what's your real name and what's your legal name mm. it's almost like you have to acknowledge that a real name and legal name are not synonymous and if you create a structure where the legal name will be you know kept private and um used discreetly like only when necessary and not like put on blast for the whole company you really have to examine within yourself that a legal name is not an actual name for everybody or preferred pronouns are not simply for oh whatever you do is fine but well you know it's obvious like it's almost um it's almost saying we're all in this together and you have to like disclose like oh, my name is Jasper Wild and my legal name is Jasper Wild instead of, oh, why would that, why would that have to be? It's not putting the ownership on the queer person to make all the adjustments for themselves, which is going to be like stressful and hurtful. And um, honestly, like we do it all the time. So it's, it's a, it's like a very exhausting little, I mean, I'd almost call it a microaggression, like an unintentional microaggression. A million little ones. Yeah, so often. Yeah, I think that's that's a very good point. And I think that it's similar to procrastination. If you only just did the work, you'd find that doing it feels better than being upset about the fact that you're supposed to do it. Mm. And I think that there are elements, of course, where you're going to have some very small sacrifices of privilege. And one of the examples I can think of is when people get very upset that they have to press one for English. <laughs> well, America has no official language, but even if we did, is it really that hard? Mm -hmm. um, you're going to be pressing a lot of buttons in a, in a minute anyway. Like yeah. it's not really a huge barrier. And yeah. in terms of sacrifices of privilege, that helps people who are not native English speakers in America so much. And it doesn't hurt you at all. And you know, even when we look at those sacrifices, you're still not going to be coming out on the bad side. And everyone benefits from a more inclusive society, even though at first it might hurt to learn things you've never had to learn about because people are used to doing very specific types of learning. Mm -hmm. But learning entirely new things about what has constructed your idea of yourself is a little bit harder. And it's yeah. definitely a journey for everyone. And I can't pretend that that's necessarily easy and everyone should just get on board. But in a lot of ways, it is that easy and people can choose to get on board. Mm -hmm. It'll wonder, get complicated at some point, but. I wonder if uh, some companies that might not have thought of these structural changes, once they start to do them and once they start to actually do the small bit of learning to be like, I'm going to you know, make sure I identify as he, him, like I've never had to do that. It might give a little bit more empathy when they're dealing with queer people. Cause they're like, I, I chose he, him, and, you know, society kind of gave that to me, but, but hey, like, I had to examine that too, and I can see that, that you've examined a lot more than I have. There might be a little bit more respect. Absolutely. Um, I think I'm that, hopeful. <laughs> ho hopefully, uh, <laughs> I think that 
There's nothing to engender empathy, which is a feeling of truly understanding what someone else is going through, than actually going through that yourself. I think that's why empathy is sometimes a limited approach, um, because sometimes it closes people off to thinking of things that are truly outside of their experience. But at the same time, we're all humans, and nothing that another human goes through should be that far outside of your experience. And um, I think it's true that just a little more work does engage in a lot of brain building. Um, sorry, brain building. Yeah. Can you talk about the little bit of work that goes into um, giving a safe and comfortable travel experience to trans and queer workers that uh, maybe you uh, want to send places? Yes, that was a challenging piece for me because um, a lot of the things that I discussed in the hiring ad part of the series and the intake paperwork part of the series were so simple and they involved only internal structures and it was like you can really keep things private they allow for discretion so with travel it's a lot harder because you know people are going on planes you have to use your legal name there's no buts about it um and with checking into hotels that's the thing that people often don't think of uh so one of the most important things to do is that when you do that intake paperwork and you have all your employees letting you know their pronouns and when their legal name differs from their name, uh, keep a separate list of that. And then you'll have sort of your short list of employees who need sort of like you're gonna have to do a little bit of phone calling before they travel. So with a hotel, just you know, give a call ahead and say this person is gonna be checking in and this is their real name. This is their legal name. I'm just letting you know ahead of time. I'm booking a lot of people in this hotel. I'm giving you money. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm you know? giving you business. Just make a note. Make a note. <laughs> and this is the thing. Like, That's their job. That's, they're most, part of hospitality. Most companies want to do, the, do these things right. Um, they just don't know how. And another really important thing that I've only learned about recently is that a lot of employees, I knew about this part, a lot of employees will get harassed in the airport in various ways. Having, having gender markers that are not the way that you present your gender, you will get harassed. But even if you're a very cis-passing trans person, you'll look different on an x-ray than you are quote-unquote supposed to look, and you will get a very thorough, very public pat-down. And um, for the price of $85, you can get TSA pre-check as long as you you know, don't have an extensive criminal record, which is obviously, that's not a perfect system. And also regarding American citizenship, it's limiting. But for employees that that works for, you can kick them a very small amount of money towards that. Or if you can even help them save for it or in some way, let them know about it. Just whatever you can do, every bit helps. Like if you kicked somebody $10 and made that a $75 cost, and made sure they had the time off to go do it, I'm sure they would appreciate it. And it's good for five years. It's good for five years. Five years. And that's it's, it's less than a year of prime, and it's good for five years. <laughs> so then what you'll walk through is essentially a 90s era airport security where you go through a metal detector and you will stop getting pat-downs. Pat I think that's awesome for companies to think about that you don't have to give everything, but even showing acknowledgement of the things that you can and can't give. I think that's a problem that a lot of companies from my experience seem to face is that it's kind of an all or nothing situation and that the work required to do things that make things more inclusive for people is somehow too much 
which it's, it's not. Mm. And for the things that are, perhaps you don't have $85, like even if you're a big company, maybe you should, but like <laughs> even showing that this is something that's important to you and kicking back a couple of bucks or giving someone the time to do this thing is really key. And informing really cool. them about it. Yeah, just informing them, being like, hey, I like, didn't know about it. I didn't know about I it until you it just said like $300 it. $300 per flight. Well, I, I didn't realize like, you could just do pre-check. I know. Now that you're saying this to me, I'm like, what the what the fuck like yeah. that's amazing yeah. um, and it's such a small thing that shows and I think this is just true in companies in general these small gestures are so meaningful to people in a number of different arenas um, and we should take the time to do them absolutely uh, it's it's very true and I think that it is very very true and very operative in so many companies that if you feel you can and in people's lives if you feel you can't entirely solve a problem you sometimes just naturally avoid it because you feel guilty about it and you feel weird about it and you don't want to think about it and I think that that operates in a lot of ways especially in smaller companies with less money and so many of the things that I try to focus on are free and this is not free pre-check's not free but a phone call to a hotel is free it doesn't mm -hmm. even take a lot of time. Mm -hmm. um, Putting and, a name and a legal name. Exactly. On a form is free. Yeah. It'll take you five minutes and it's free. Yeah. That that was so that was so enlightening for me to see because I know that um, everybody gets uncomfortable in airports and I think it's maybe a little bit missed that um, queer people get more uncomfortable mm -hmm. in airports than the average person. Uh, so. Like I've been mistaken, like my gender has been mistaken when I go through security or something and I choose not to go through the, the x-ray thing because they're a little bit toxic and I like to fly a lot and I don't want to die of cancer. So they'll always like, they'll pick somebody who's the same gender mm. and, um, you know, sometimes they won't know or they'll ask or they'll assume. Uh, but then like when the person gets there, they're like, oh, where's... Where's the female? Where's the female? And it's like, like oh, right here. <laughs> I'm over here. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I've also I've also had a a friend of mine who's um, he's non-binary and he doesn't uh, he looks like a a woman. I guess he looks like female. So he once was one time flagged down and a woman was patting him down and got really weirded out by his binder. And um, it just became like a terrible kind of meltdown moment for him where it was like, you're already so stressed and you've spent so, so much stressed. money. Yeah. And then like a person, you have your arms out and someone is like literally like going all over your chest and is like, what is this? What do you have on you? And, you know, they're. And if you have an emotional response, you can get into a serious situation. So it's a situation where you need to heavily police your emotions and be very, very nice yeah. and. It's, you know, not always rare people who get harassed in the airports that also get harassed on a regular basis by police, um, which includes trans people who are sex workers, but also any trans or queer people of color will be mm -hmm. harassed on a regular basis. So those things really compound into a situation that's stressful and you cannot show a single crack in the veneer. You have to be just really perfect. So any gesture that your company has support of you. And if anything goes down, you know you can call them because they've already gotten your back in some way, even if they weren't able to pay you, you know, pay you. They don't have to pay you to show that they support you. Yeah. A lot of these things, it's really just about a meaningful show of support 
not just mm-hmm. a statement of support. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I really think that people want to do these things. Um, the amount of resistance I've seen in articles, like, you know, basic trolling, like if you write a good article, people are going to troll, so I don't mind. But it's mostly consumers. Oh. It's mostly coffee consumers? Yeah, they're just like people who are like Reddit folks that are just, mm. you know, like, well, what about this? And it's mm-hmm. like, don't worry about it. Like, it's, <laughs> it, it, this doesn't involve you. Like, yeah. Just, just please step out. Yeah. I'm, so- I, am, I am interested in like the things that people do say to you in terms of their responses to your work. Um because I'm interested in that that idea of people getting defensive when they are told that a behavior that they engage with or maybe a system that they um, benefit from is problematic. So I wonder how how you react to that both personally because you're human. I'm sure that these things affect you. Um, but at the same time, like, yeah, how do you keep going? Sometimes it, it's hard for me to keep going. So I wonder how other people do it. A lot of it is that I'm small and I just started. Mm-hmm. So I really don't get a whole lot. Um, I don't necessarily follow things closely. I basically see good responses when people tag me. I might see some, you know, sort of waffly responses, but they're not harmful. Waffly? Yeah, What's you a know, like. Waffly response. Uh, so, uh, so, someone that is a nice person, a very nice person who works in coffee and really wants to be more inclusive, made like a, was like, but can I make a statement that I would like to have people still use the word gentleman because I think that that can exhibit a really good, you know, standard for men and masculine people. And, and I'm like, okay, so I understand what you're saying. I'm just, it's sort of like to the side. So that's what I mean by waffly. Like that's like, I'm glad I'm starting a conversation that's not directly in response to what I'm saying. I don't feel that it in any way negates what I'm saying. And I've had no one in coffee say anything negative. So when I do see things that are less positive, um, it's kind of okay because not everyone agrees with me. And really the primary thing that I want to focus on is that I'm not writing persuasive essays on why people should make their company more inclusive. I feel that work has already been done. I am writing HR materials for people who do want to make their company more inclusive. And I know that's most of the people that I've ever engaged with who are managers who work for coffee companies and the people who own coffee companies. I haven't met any of those people who are like not interested, but if they are not interested, that's okay because people should have the option. Mm -hmm. I just want to help people have that option. They Mm -hmm. can choose if they want to make their infrastructure more inclusive. Mm-hmm. And they can have some tools on how to do that because it's not easy, but it is. It's just not easy to break down what you need to do when a lot of what privilege is is just things that you don't see. So somebody kind of has to walk you around those corners. So yeah. I'm here as a helper for those people who want to walk around the corners. Mm-hmm. I think you broke my brain. <laughs> <laughs> that was so that was so enlightening um, to me. Yeah, I'm going to take a breather. Take a breather. I want to talk to you about roasting now. Yes, yeah. That's what I do. You roast coffee five days a week. Four days a week. Four days a week. What do you do on the fifth day? We cup and we clean and sometimes we take a long lunch. 
<laughs> we'll be roasting on Fridays eventually. We're just kind of small in volume and it doesn't, it wouldn't be particularly sustainable to have a separate roast day that day because it's just like, let's fire up a huge electric machine that takes, you know, a half hour to heat up and then use it for an hour. So we, we you, can do that later when we need to. Right. So you roast on a Loring and a ProBot, right? It's a Loring and a San Franciscan. So we have a 70 oh. kilo Loring Peregrine and a 25 pound San Franciscan. Rare. What do you like better? I love them both equally. They're my children. So <laughs> you can't pick. Uh, I can't pick, but I love being on both of them for different reasons. Um, the Loring is a very, uh, like sort of computer controlled numeric interface. And um, that machine roasts coffee a little bit faster. You have to kind of exert a little bit more control over it, but it's also a little bit more set it and forget it. If you mm -hmm. have like good initial settings mm -hmm. for your gas values, things can kind of just run themselves mostly. And then the other thing about Loring's is that since they roast, you know, a lot through sort of convection, pushing mm -hmm. superheated air through the coffee rather than through contact heat. Mm -hmm. um, the coffee actually smells less dramatic on the trier. Oh, and okay. the appearance, it looks lighter to the eye because the outside is less seared. Interesting. So it's like a steak cooking through rather than a steak getting a nice sear on the outside and being very red on the inside. So I have to multiply, uh, I'm sorry, I have to kind of be dual calibrated to what the same coffee looks like and smells like on each roaster at any given awesome. time that's that, all that's, that I mean, makes it, sense that's like pulling espresso on like a seneso versus a la marzocco right that totally makes sense and that's something that i've never really thought about um i still don't believe that you don't have a favorite roaster everyone has a favorite child well the loring is easier um mm -hmm. but it's physically harder because it's 70 kilo versus 25 pounds so when i'm on the loring it's a lot of physical work but I can kind of sometimes tune out a little mentally uh, because mostly, you know, we roast based on volume of what is ordered. So if we have something that's ordered in just a pretty small quantity, we'll roast it on the San Franciscan. And then something ordered in a larger quantity will be on the Loring. So because of that, it's mostly our year-round offerings, which is like the counterculture version of espresso blends, but they're single origin a lot. So we call them year-rounds. And so those drop a little later. They're a little darker and are a little more forgiving. So potentially easier but if you're roasting a very large batch of single origin coffee that's also a lot of pressure yeah what excites you about your job what are the things that you look forward to in your day-to-day -day? i love workflow getting into a flow state um i love that first part of the day when you're maybe a little bit nervous and that that part of the day when you're kind of like okay it's chill i've got this Mm -hmm. And kind of rediscovering that every day. And for a long time, you know, there's there's a large part of roasting where you start doing it and you have to develop, you know, what we think of as intuition. But what it really is, is just a long codex of memory and bridges between like sight and smell and color track numbers and cupping table and just collating a lot of data in your mind to the point where it lives in your gut. And you can make decisions based on that in, you know, a tenth of a second. And those decisions have intense consequences financially. And you get it right a lot of the time. You get it wrong sometimes. And that's like a very high drama situation that I kind of live for. And <laughs> it, it takes a long time to really understand why you're doing things correctly. So for a long time, 
you know, after I started, like I would make some mistakes, but mostly I was hitting coffee at the right roast level and it was tasting good. Mm -hmm. And I felt like really edgy because it was like, this is so great that this is happening, but I don't understand how I'm making it happen. And what if it just goes away and then everything comes out at the wrong roast level. Um, But now as I've been in it over a year, all the origins I'm roasting are repeated. A lot of the coffees I'm roasting, you know, the second year in a row. Mm -hmm. And that's like really a moment of clarity for me because I know how to approach it. I don't have to hit every situation with novelty. Mm -hmm. I can hit it with some memory and Mm -hmm. experience. The counterculture has like so many coffees and you know, as you've just said, you have them like year after year. When you get like a fresh crop coffee, do you have like a database that you just go in? You're like, oh, let me get that like Antigua Guatemalan roast line and then just like use it. Or is it like farm by farm? Like how do you how do you set the roast lines? We are we love Cropster, but we don't really use it that heavily in that respect. We have sort of generic lines and then we roast very much based on like what the coffee is doing and just watching it very closely. And it's helpful when you have a good line, but it's not something I would ever expect. Um, Not something I would ever require, I should say. Hmm. I want to be able to do it without the line. So I think they're super helpful, but we don't have like ultra specific, like a line for a coffee. We might have like a line that's like 40 pound batch of like Latin coffee um, that we know that we're adjusting and we kind of just communicate on how we're roasting a thing. And just try to roast it so that it tastes the best. And I think that coffees will have a similarity from year to year, but um, they won't be the same from year to year. So, and and our roasting styles change over time too, as the industry shifts. So I don't know that I've ever been like, ooh, let me grab that line from last year. I want to do that. So I'm like, this coffee's here and I'm so stoked about it. I want to just go for it and do something with it and see what I did with it and then do it again. When you mentioned the thing about your brain making connections to your actions, that that really resonated with me because I think roasting is one of the things in coffee that we still treat as precious craft, mm. as like a that it is intuitive, that it Valid. is something that you have to feel. And, you know, if you look at some bags of coffee from some roasters here in San Francisco, that's even how they describe what they do. It's like roasting is like a smell, a process, a feeling but it really is a connection that you make in your brain of what you're doing versus what you're experiencing. Um, And I think that's really interesting that you described it that way. Mm, Yeah, I think that uh, my coworker, Jesse Bladika, um, who's our sales rep, had a very good analogy with uh, homebrewing beer. Like it's very, if you've ever tried it, it's very easy to homebrew a beer that tastes pretty good. The really hard thing is getting it to taste the same the next time that you brew it. And that is very true with roasting. I can roast a coffee so that it tastes good. Like I can probably do that at any given moment. But with quality control, what we're putting out is not just a coffee that tastes good. We're putting out a consistent product. So even within the realm of a single origin coffee that this is Adido or it's Haru, that coffee has a potential to live up to that we taste year after year and we're aware of what that potential should be. And we really want it to be its best self, but we also are dealing with a customer expectation. So we can't just say, you know, that tastes good, even though it's at the wrong roast level. Mm-hmm. We have to send it out consistently or it's going to extract wrong. Mm-hmm. And then with year-round products, they kind of exist as an idea mm-hmm. of a flavor and a product as well. And um, it's very important to, you know, recognize that these are crops and they're variable. 
but that also there's some amount of consistency you have to give out. And I think that we have good systems in place for like navigating that balance. And I appreciate that about my team. One of the things that I think I would be remiss if I didn't bring up is personally for me, how much I've learned from you. Um, Not just in the conversations that we're having now, but I think one of the most salient conversations that I had with you was about being human and making mistakes. And it really made me feel less anxious about the mistakes that I had made. Um, And I feel that I've just learned so much from you and I'm glad that you're, you're a person that I get to know. Um, But I don't know. I want to reflect on that a little bit. I don't think I have a direction with this, but just, you know, we're in this discourse of, you know, like the politics of gender and some, I've been thinking a lot of just the idea of people being humans in, in terms of the discourse that we've been involved in, because for me, it's hard for me to not take things personally. And this has been like the first, I guess, really pivotal moment in my life where I've really been able to step back and listen better. And I think a lot of it has to do with listening to you specifically. Um, so I don't know. I don't know where I'm going to go with that. But I, I just I felt like I needed to say it because I've learned a lot from you. And I think the biggest thing that I've learned is to ask questions and just be open and honest and don't hold back. And if you feel and be genuine with your responses and actions. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And I feel the same about my relationship with both of you. Um, Regarding, you know, I think something that's been on my mind lately is people talking about call-out culture and coffee, and I'd be remiss if I didn't go there. And I think that people have an idea that correction is about being harsh, because sometimes it can be harsh, because sometimes people are tired. But, you know, in general, you can tell when people have good intentions, and I don't see anyone getting crucified who really steps in with good intentions and is ready to make mistakes and apologize. We're all human and we have feelings and you cannot learn without making mistakes. It's literally impossible. That's not the way human brains work. Mm -hmm. No one ever stepped out of the womb and knew everything. Mm -hmm. That's just literally not it. Um, But when we think about improvement and accountability and correction as an industry, we have to think about not stereotyping people as angry when they're requesting accountability, when they're opening dialogue. And I think people are so afraid of being demonized for being imperfect that they can move in the direction of demonizing other people. And I think that we should definitely all be aware that we're all human and we all make mistakes. And if you're a person who's self-critical, you might hold other people to a standard as well. And if you're not a person who's self-critical, Um, you might not like being criticized, but critique is helpful for everyone. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm thinking about how someone like brews me a cup of coffee and is like, drink it. It's so good. And if I'm like, hey, I think it's a little too coarse. Can you tighten it up a little bit? No one would be like, you are invalidating me as a barista. You don't (laughs) think I can do anything right. Like you're going to ostracize me now. And yet when we say to someone like, hey, that comment you made about that black woman being angry actually is a little bit racist. Like, 
would you would you apologize for that they're like you're calling me racist you don't want to be my friend you like don't accept me as a good person at all i'm not racist i have da 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 it's like saying this coffee can't be too coarse like i brewed another one and i refracted it this other time and it was correct that's a huge that's like my favorite analogy that i was a really good analogy (laughs) yeah i actually used that in an article that i wrote yesterday that is going to go out at some point but i'm not sure where yet yeah but we're very calibrated on that I think that the issue at hand is um, a situation where people think of their actions and their personhood separately. But let's not focus so much on our personhood because we're all human, as I've said, as we all say. We all make mistakes. Our actions are things that we do on a regular basis that we can actually change and correct. And it's not about shame. It's because that's like about, you know, feeling bad about who you are. Nobody should have to feel like they've been condemned personally. But you also don't have have to have such an attachment to descriptors as relating to your character. They relate to your actions. No one's talking about your character. We love you. It's coffee. We love each other. Mm-hmm. You know, we're just talking about actions and, you know, actually improving things. And if no one had ever critiqued commodity coffee, we wouldn't have specialty coffee. There's literally no way to say this could be better without saying this isn't perfect. Yeah. And you can't have an attachment to anything being perfect because nothing's perfect. There's just it will ne- nothing will ever be perfect. Nothing in the world. Yeah. Lord, you're doing a great job trying to help people and I think you're wonderful and excellent and I'm really happy that you're on this podcast. I'm happy to be here. Thank you so much. Me yeah. too. Is there anything else you feel is important in coffee that you want to discuss? Any any last words you have for our community? Hmm, not sure. What's uh, what's your favorite coffee right now? Oh, God. I think I hate coffee right now. Oh, no. Uh, no, that's not true. <laughs> um, I was lucky to have Tony Cuero's coffee from Matchbook Coffee Project. Mm. Um, it's this Ecuadorian coffee that was absolutely delicious. And I didn't have, I was at the cafe and I didn't have any brewing methods except our feco. So I was like, well, I'm brewing all of it, I guess. Yeah. So I made a batch of that coffee and it was probably one of the most excellent coffees I've ever had. So good job, Tony. Aww. You roasted an excellent coffee. I have Sandra's coffee too. I haven't brewed it yet. Yeah. Um, from Matchbook. And then Cameron Heath is going to be our next, next roaster. And I believe he's roasting a coffee from Tanzania. Mm, stoked about it. I know. I'm excited. Cool. Um, so the coffees coming out of Matchbook have been really excellent. I've been really happy with those. Yeah, that's a great project. What about you? What's your favorite coffee right now? Well, we just got our new Ethiopians in, so I'm mm-hmm. loving Adido. It's a, the maybe the only coffee I've tasted every year I've been in coffee, so I've known that coffee longer than some of my best friends. Aww. <laughs> that's so cute. How many years? Five years. Five years. What about you, Jasper? I'm kind of racking my brain. I've been... I don't even drink coffee. I don't even drink it. No. You guys remember that shit baristas say? YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even drink coffee. <laughs> That's real though. Um, I drink coffee. I just I love espresso. Okay, I had an amazing shot of um Esperanza Ictu from Brazil. It's a single origin that we have right now and I was just pulling it randomly in the middle of the day to taste it and it tasted like mint like it actually had mint and it like made my whole mouth feel cool and it was espresso and i was giving it to everyone i was like mint 
actual <laughs> <laughs> and everyone was like, oh, okay, Jasper. Like, uh-huh. And Circus says, yeah, totally. And I was like, no, you taste the mint. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I kind of do. And so that was like, I, I don't think I like coffee, like, in a general sense. I think I, it's like a one experience. So that experience has been my favorite so far. Yeah, I definitely Recently. feel that. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, thank you all so much for having me. How uh, We've mentioned it a couple of times, but... Uh, how can people find your writing? Um, okay, so I'm on Medium as Queer Cup. Um, and also there's a link through my Instagram, which is RJ Sprosif. I'm also on Twitter as RJ Sprosif. And if You're you want to just Twitter. be friends, <laughs> you can find me on Facebook as RJ Joseph. Perfect. And then if you have any questions for us, you can email us at bossbaristapodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we're also on Instagram. We do that. Yeah. Boss Barista Podcast. Uh, Twitter is a thing that we should still use more. Uh, boss underscore barista. Um, so please send us any questions. If you have questions for RJ and you want to direct them over this way, if you want to email us so we can ask her, please do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but thank you guys so much for listening to us. Um, it's always a pleasure. And keep up with that coffee Twitter. Just listeners living for the coffee twitter hashtag coffee twitter and you'll find gems oh god coffee twitter is rowdy it's rowdy it's so it like gives me life and also defeats me at the same time i'm still struggling to like follow which subtweets are like connected to each other so for me it's like a game i'm like what is the source of the story what is everyone talking about oh man it's a challenging platform It it is and then all of the dms and private conversations that end up happening where you're like how is how is this happening how am i involved in this but i guess here i am let's do it let's get into it um has been a source of both inspiration and grief fatigue oh anyway yeah signing off blah 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 by jasper wild bye no i'm just kidding oh, that was yeah <laughs> i was like that's the opposite of what you want to do would you like to sing a song to end us out um okay no (laughs) (laughs) the one time i offer it to you and you're like it's because i was distracted by i see the cat food and it's like (laughs) kitties and coffee and twitter and bosses bye (laughs) that's us bye (laughs) bye bye